Welcome to Keeping It Real with Frankie D, the very first Italian-American podcast and the home of your Italian-American moments. I'm your very proud host, Frankie D, and we can be heard at ItalianAmericanLife.com, on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. My guest today is Karen Tintori, an internationally best-selling author of fiction and nonfiction. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, before we get into talking about some of your books and other things, um, tell me a little bit about your Italian background, please. I grew up in a home where my father spoke to his grandmother in a Northern Italian dialect from Modena, that sound, it's a very, no, no is nunun. And uh, a lot of the endings, the vowels are cut off, have, have like hard endings. And if I looked at it, there are accent marks all over in that dialect, there are accent marks all over the words. And some of the words are only a letter. And I can't understand, but two words out of it. And my mother's family came from Sicily. Uh, my grandmother from Palermo, well, she was born in Partinico. They, they then moved to Palermo and then to Detroit. And my grandfather on my mom's side from Mazzara del Vallo, the largest fishing port uh, on the western, it's on the western coast of Sicily. And so I heard Sicilian mostly because my mother would talk to her sisters and her mother every day. And I heard the, the northern dialect. And between the two dialects, they didn't have five words that matched each other. Really? Was that different for you? Yeah. So I, I'm kind of like a daughter of the mountains of Northern Italy and uh, uh, the Montagna, Montagna and the Mare, the sea from Sicily. Nice. Well, you have a little bit of both then. That's, yeah. that's, nice, uh, that's a nice upbringing. Um, okay. So delving into your book, Unto the Daughters. Now, I read the book, very much enjoyed it. I'm assuming that this was based off of your real family. Is that correct? This is a true story. Uh, when I discovered this family secret that had been kept for 80 years in, in my Sicilian family, you know, half of the family is screaming at me to forget this blankety blank, blank, blank. And the other half is going, you go, girl. Because what I discovered, well, my aunt literally told me the family secret behind my grandmother's back. Um, I thought I knew that family extremely well. There were three sons, three daughters, and then three more sons. And my mother had uncles her age because her grandmother was pregnant at the same time. My grandmother, who was the oldest daughter, was pregnant with my mom. Turns out there was another daughter. And she was uh, a year or so younger than my grandmother. And she, the night her older brothers killed her, she was erased from the family passport. She, all of her clothing was burned. Every picture of her was destroyed. And it was as if she had never existed. And um, my aunt had opened up. I kept, I didn't realize I was being stalled when I was researching another book from my Northern Italian side, Trapped about the Cherry Mine disaster. I didn't speak Italian at that time because I'd heard these two dialects growing up and didn't know true Italian. And I was trying to research my grandpa Tintori who died before I was born. My mother kept saying, oh, you don't have to write to Italy. Grandma's got all the documents. You, you know, on the Sicilian side, it'll be easy. 
Well, I never realized every time I'd make an appointment to go see the documents my grandmother had, the night before I'd get a phone call, oh, we forgot grandma has a doctor's appointment or, oh, there would be some excuse why it would be postponed. And then I'd forget about it and reschedule. And, and I didn't realize I was being stalled, that they had something to hide. And so when I discovered this, that she, Francesca, just her name, was in love with a young barber her age, and she eloped with him rather than marry the man her 20 years older than she was, who her father had promised her to. And it was in Detroit. She's not on the 1920 census. And so I know she was, she was killed before then. And at that time, during Prohibition, there was, you know, the, the mafia in Detroit. It wasn't the mafia mafia. It was, they were running rum, uh, booze back and forth, either across to Canada, across the Detroit River when the ice was frozen, or they were going down to Toledo, or the, the quote, mafia was stealing tires, stealing cars, r prostitution. It was a bunch of street gangs, you know, the Corle Corleone gang and the Partinico gang. It was, a, you know, it wasn't the mafia as we would think of the mafia. Well, my great grandfather wanted to get his boys a leg up and into a better into a better gang. And so he promised Francesca to the son of that gang leaders. And so the honor killing was because she ruined their chances. She, you know, in Sicily, had she eloped and come back, you know, she was spoiled. She, that's it. She, they had to accept it. She was married and that was it. That's how young women, it was called the Fujita. They ran away and they got married and came back and everybody had to accept that they didn't marry who the family wanted her to. But here the brothers were like, you know, you, you screwed us. And so you're going to pay. You know, the irony of it all, um, I, I'll be honest, when I was reading it and I came to this fact, I was just, I, I was like shocked. I was, I was kind of disturbed. I got to be honest. Um, oh, it's horrific. It's horrible. Um, the irony though is if you're, if Francesca's family never came to America, she never would have met this fate, is right. what you're saying. Right, so exactly. How, how terrible. So now you, as a member of the family, a writer, like how torn were you to write this book, to actually oh. make this public knowledge? Oh my God, Frank, terribly. Because growing up, you don't air your dirty laundry. You know, later I learned that the, the expression Stizit, shut up, keep quiet. But when I called my mother, my, well, my aunt opened up the, I went around to kiss my grandmother, hello, and she's sputtering Sicilian and I can see her scalp is pink under her white hair. Who's she going to show? Who's she going to tell? And my aunt literally told me the family secret behind my grandmother's back when she opened up the passport and Francesca's name was obliterated with a black pen. And she goes, that's the one they got rid of. Did your mother ever tell you? And my mouth fell open and I gasped. And then Gracie slams the book closed, the passport closed. And she says, "Never mind." And I'm going, no, no, you can't do that to me. Well, when I call my mother, my mother screams at me because I'm a writer, a journalist. She knew. And she screams at me to forget that blankety blank blank. Your father went to his grave and he never knew that. And I was just like, my father never knew that. My, my godmother's husband never knew it. And when the book came out, when I, she was like, she never, she didn't want her kids to know. 
She didn't want her husband to know. So half of the family was, you go, girl. Give Francis back, Francesca back her name. Restore her place. This was, this was a horrible injustice done to her. And the other half of the family is, you better shut up or you're going to get into trouble. So I was, I was extremely conflicted. I wrote that three entire times as a novel. Because I said, I have to tell her story, but I can't tell it as a true story. And so I told it as fiction. And the first time it was somebody my at that time, my age, like a 40-year-old genealogist who stumbles upon um, the real wedding picture of her grandparents. We were always shown, my grandparents' wedding picture was a one of those hand-tinted pictures of them in peasant clothes. Well, that was grandma and grandpa's wedding. Okay, so I thought, all right, the impetus for the, the starting point of the novel is somebody is snooping and they find this picture where the grandparents are in a gown and a veil and a bouquet and a boutonniere, but there's two extra people in this picture. And, and I know Uncle Louie, but who's that girl who looks like me? And so three times I wrote the book with the protagonist being a different age. I had a cousin in acting school who said he and his wife were both in acting school. And they said, you know, maybe if the protagonist was Francis's age, she would, you know, it would hit her like, oh, my God, that could have been me. None of those sold. My agent couldn't sell them. And finally, my editor who, from uh, Simon and Schuster, who was my editor on Trapped, said, you have got to give yourself permission to reimagine her life and tell it as a true story. So I took a big, deep breath and I ordered books from the library on uh, in Sicilian in Italian on I'm like, how did this happen in a Catholic family, Italian Catholic family? So I studied what life was like for the peasants in Sicily at the time. I did, I did, took about 12 years to, to study all of this, to come to, ter- to write the three novels and then to come to terms with, I had to tell this story and I had to use my journalist's head to get around all the facts. And, mean, was, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say it was, a, it, I really enjoyed it. It was a great story. And the, the way you went back and forth from Sicily Detroit, early 1900s, later 19, I don't know what decade you got up to, um, but much later in the century and then back to the turn of the century. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was it was very well written. Thank you. That that was due to my editor, uh, Nicole Argyris, because I had written it linear. I started out in Sicily and then went down the decades to the 70s. And she said, no, I think there are some similarities between your mother's story and Francis. And she drew out a figure eight and plotted. She said, where well, I want everything to come together in the middle. I've, I've only had a few, few people say to me, I couldn't, I didn't like going back and forth, but I think that the way she told me to reconstruct that story was brilliant. Thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. Uh, highly recommend the book. Uh, Thank you. And I, um, I give you credit. Um, I know it had to be very difficult. It was, and, I, and I'm proud that it was nominated for a Michigan uh, Notable Book Award. I wish I had won, but it was an honor to be nominated. Oh, that's excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about another book you wrote called Trapped, the 1909 Cherry Mine Disaster, which tell us a little bit about that and how you came to write that book as well. Well, my grandpa Tintori, my dad's father, died before I was born. My mother suspected she was pregnant with me. In those days, they would take uh, urine from a a woman who suspected she was pregnant and inject it into a rabbit. And if the rabbit died, she was pregnant. So my mother hadn't killed the rabbit yet, but he was in the hospital and 
she said, I'm pregnant. And he said, I'll never live to see the baby. And that was my little moment in time with Grandpa Tintori. But growing up, my grandmother lived upstairs and we lived downstairs in the house in Detroit. And I can still picture her standing on the staircase leading up to her flat, telling me my grandfather survived the Cherry Mine disaster in a way like your grandfather walked on water. So I must, I was under eight years old at eight, we moved to another house. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to, in, in doing genealogy on this grandfather, I'm going to write to the Bureau of Mines. I'm going to write to the mayor of Cherry, Illinois. I am going to write to whomever and see what I can find out about the Cherry Mine disaster while I'm trying to research him and not speaking Italian at that time or reading much Italian. And the pieces to the puzzle, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. And I was getting the pieces out of order. And what I discovered was um, Titanic in a coal mine is what I call it. Like if you wanted to give your elevator pitch of what's this book about, the Cherry Mine was the safest mine in the country. It was, it was opened in 1905. It was supposed to have year run year round with an endless supply of coal for at least 50 years. It's the northernmost coal field in Illinois. And the story of this disaster, which has great historical significance, is such a, a secret, especially in Illinois, that um, it, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the story is that on a Saturday morning, and, and there was so much work that the call went out to European nations to for people who were starving come you have will have work all year you'll have a great life and most of the victims were Italian Italians who had come from Italy and were they not uh, more on the northern Italian they side? were more from the northern Italian side from from the from Modena and northern Italian there were some Greeks there were Welsh there were some French there were also American uh, and they there were German farmers in Cherry, and then there was this immigrant population where the neighbors couldn't speak to each other because they didn't have the same language. And in the mine, there was only one sign that uh, told the way out, and it was in English. So the mine was one of the was the first mine outfitted with electricity throughout, which was unheard of. They had the way they lit the the tunnels of the mine were with kerosene torches that were positioned along the timbers, the ceiling. And the reason they had these wooden timbers is because where you find coal above it is shale. And when you hear about coal mine cave-ins, it's the shale that's caving in. And so three weeks before this fire, the electricity went out because there was dampness in the bottom level. There were, there were two levels of the mine. In the coal field, the first level is not mineable, but then you have the second vein, which is thicker, and then you have the third vein, which is about 500 feet down. So at 300 feet was the second vein, 500 was the lower vein where there were mules. And when the guys filled up the coal cars, then the mules carried them to the elevator shafts. There was one elevator shaft that went from the second vein down to the third vein. And so, and then there was one that went from the first vein to the second vein. So coming to work in the morning, the men dropped down to the second vein, walked a mile across it, then took the other shaft down. And there were also stairs there. Um, 
about noontime on a Saturday, 481 men and boys went to work in the mine that morning. About noon, hay came down to feed the mules. Well, coal is king. So the coal was coming up. And so they had to get the coal up. So they pushed aside the hay cart for the mules. And the theory is that they parked it underneath a kerosene torch because they had to revert back to using the kerosene torches while they waited, waited for the electrical wire to come in. Now, you could take a blowtorch to cut hay and it won't catch fire. So the theory is some of the kerosene must have dripped into the hay and it was an accelerant. And by the time the kids realized that the hay cart was on fire and tried to push it down into the bottom to to put the fire out, there were hoses down there. It was too late. The timbers above had caught fire. Um, the Chicago Fire Department was was called. They pumped 10,000 gallons of water into the mine, but the fire was in the ceiling and the water hit the floor. So all it did was create a sauna where the guys in, in the bottom vein got, got boiled. And so a lot of people tried to leave the people way in the back of the mine didn't hear the call that the mine was on fire. And, you know, if you're speaking different languages, it was just, it was just mass confusion. The mine rescue stations were in Pittsburgh. The, you know, the, the people from the geological survey came from Pittsburgh, came from another place in the South. And it was just, by the time help got there, the only thing that they could think to do was to cover the mine and try to, um, Put out the fire by covering the entrances to the mine. So you've got these women and children and townspeople wailing. You had some townspeople who'd never been in a mine had gone down on, on several rescue missions. And on the last rescue mission, they the signals, there were signals to the guy who would lower them down and lower that cage up and down. They were they were they gave them specific signals of when to raise it, and when to lower it, when they had found people to rescue and they were on fire. The people were on fire and, they, and the signals were going crazy and he didn't know what to do. And people are finally screaming him, raise the cage. And when he raised the cage, everybody on the cage was burnt to death. And this is what the townspeople see. So the mine was sealed for eight days. And after eight days, they opened it to try to see if the, if the fire was out or if they could rescue anybody and the miracle of it was that eight days later, there were 21 men who had sealed themselves up at the back. They had lain down and prepared to die. They had written notes to their loved ones, put it in their pockets. And in the middle of the night, one of the men said, he was very religious and said, let's pray. And I have an idea. Let's see if we can find any tools. And if we can dig up some of the coal and blockade ourselves in this tunnel because they kept going back. There was black damp and there was gas that was killing people. If we can get back far enough where we have good air and blockade ourselves in, maybe we can make it until we're rescued. And that saved their lives. I mean, they, the lights in their helmets lasted from Saturday to Tuesday. After Tuesday, they were in total darkness. They were eating their belts. They were eating their shoe leather they were digging at the floor trying to get water and they it was so putrid they'd drink a little bit and throw it up and um finally they were so starving and thirsty and dying that they said we got to break through these walls and go out and see if, if we can get out of here and that's when the rescue crew was coming in and these guys were taken out of the mine alive which was the miracle 
Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that part. So yep. in uh, 2019, uh, I was uh, very lucky that a very dear friend of mine, Carlo Vanilla, says to me one day, hey, let's take a ride to Cherry, Illinois. Now, I had knew nothing about the entire situation of that. And he explained a little to me and I said, oh, yeah, I would love to come. And then we asked uh, Dominic Candoloro, who is the head of the Casa Italia Library and someone that you know as well. Um, so the three of us, uh, Carlo drove and we went to, to Cherry. Didn't tell anybody, we just went there. Uh, not a very big town, so it, it wasn't that difficult to like find things. And we ended up in the library and they were so helpful and just, they were like, they were like tickled pink that we would come from Chicago for this. Uh, they showed us everything. They were, they were great people. Um, if my memory serves me, I want to say the number was 259 people died in the disaster. Yes. Yes. I want to say something like, um, 85 were Italian. Is yes. that sense? That, that sounds about right. And we were the largest ethnic group, uh, correct. Yes. And some of correct. this was children correct like some of these were boys that were like 14 and 15 if i'm not mistaken and younger there were because the mine needed workers and the family needed money you were supposed to be 16 to work in the mine but the family wrote that the kids were older and the mine looked the other way and so we had these children i mean child labor laws were changed as a result of this disaster the the little boys would open the doors for the, for the cars filled with coal to come through and then they close them again to keep the good air in the mine. And um, yeah, there were these little kids down there. Uh, just just a, a horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, I have not read your book on the Cherry Mine disaster. I definitely am going to read that. Um, I was uh, very happy that, uh, that, like I said, my friend took me there in 2019. Um, it's it's about if I remember about an hour and a half south of uh, Chicago, so it's not too far from where I live. Um, but uh, just just a oh what a horrible tragedy. Um, having said that, I wanted to touch base with you a little bit about. I know you've been to Italy many times, and um, you acquired dual citizenship, and apparently you have uh, learned the Italian language. Uh, at more of an adult age, you did some type of uh, immersion program. So could could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I'm very interested in that. Oh, my God. My husband had always wanted to go to Bologna. Um, we've been to Italy, I think, about 15 times. Our parents never traveled a lot, couldn't afford it. And so we may have promised to ourselves that that's what we're going to do. And on our honeymoon, we did a London, Paris and Rome trip. And from Rome, we took a day to to Florence. And Italy has been like our choice of where we're going to go. We're going to go to Italy. I have one foot there and one foot here. And um, in my, when I wanted to study Italian in college, my father's father said, study something useful with your journalism degree, like Russian. Ask me how much Russian I've used. <laughs> so yes, as an adult studied Italian and he, Larry had wanted to go to Bologna for their immersion program. And I said, you know, we've been to Bologna so many times. There's so many places in Italy we haven't gone. Let's ask our former Italian teacher where we should go. Um, you know, what program she recommended. Well, the um, Dante Alighieri Society has several 
schools in Italy where they do these immersion programs. So we ended up on the east coast of Italy between Rimini and Ancona at, in a town, a town of like, what is it, 4,000 4, people called Reconati. And there's a Dante Alighieri school there um, associated with the university. And we walked uphill and uphill both ways to school and back every day. But we were five hours in the classroom, Monday through Friday. How many weeks? And then it was a month. It was a month long. You know, we came home and said, we'll never do that again. With being trapped home during COVID, I'm like, yeah, I'd go back to Reconati and we'd do that again in a minute. And two hours of homework every day. There was a placement test you took on the first day. It was total immersion, Frank. So going in, how much did you know? I mean, with the Italian Cultural Center in Detroit starting in the eight nineties, my husband and I took classes on and off. We've I studied with little groups. I mean, present tense, I'm pretty good. Uh, past tense, I'm getting there. The the um, there's the more I know, the more I don't realize that I don't know. He will speak Italian even if it's incorrect. And me, I get tongue tied. It's like I can write it. You know, if I'm writing it, I do great. If I have to speak it to you, then I start, oh, I'm going to make a mistake. And it's like, um, so we knew, we knew enough that he placed in, he placed in the high first level and I placed in the first, second level. And it turned out we could have both been in the same class because we learned, we reviewed and learned the same things, but at different times during the class. So we had two, we, even on weekends from, from the time we finished breakfast till five o'clock on weekends, we were studying. So do you and, advise uh, this program? I, I would. Do you advise it to people? Oh that? yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The instruction was in Italian. The field trips were in Italian. The tours were in Italian. I, I mean, everything was in Italian and we go like, what did you catch that? <laughs> you know, but I mean, and the shopkeepers in the town said, your best homework will be going into the stores and talking to the people. So it's definitely the best way to learn Italian being in Italy. Yeah. I think a whole summer in Italy, it would be really good for me. <laughs> and you've been anybody. back since then, I take it, correct? No, because that was in August of 2019. We spent the month of August, we got there the end of July, came home the end of August, and then, you know what happened beginning of 2020. Right. Now, your husband is not Italian. No, well, my husband is not Italian. Loves, but he loves it there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. No, I'm just very curious with all that because, you know, I'm the type of guy like I, I, uh, I come from an uh, Italian-American area of Chicago. I mean, I always have. I was born, raised still live in somewhat, you know, there, that real neighborhood thing almost doesn't exist anymore. Uh, not like it was, but, and I see with young people and I see where we are going, our Italian American communities. And I'm just a big, huge backer and fan and believer of a trip to Italy for a younger person, you know, 18, 20, 22. Absolutely. 20, is worth its weight in gold ethnically. Yes. You know, we yes. as a, as a uh, community, Italian America, it's, and I, we devote so much time to our Italian Americanness and, and, and clubs and organizations and little Italy's and everything. 
But yet to me, like the most obvious thing that's there, if you really want to affect these younger people is have an organized trip to send them to Italy. And then to me, the rest will take care of itself because exactly. the majority of them are just going to be blown away and going to buy into all this and love it and want more and, and do it on their own. Getting more, getting more info, getting more of the language, getting more of the culture. Um, however, I have a tough time finding people that believe this as well. That's interesting. The Jewish, my husband is Jewish. I converted to Judaism before we got married. Not, uh, that's another long story that started when I was 16 and Vatican II came along and everything I was going to hell for wasn't a sin anymore. And that's, that's when my Jewish journey started. But, but the Jews do a very good job. I'll tell you what they do. Can I tell you what the name of it is? That's how much I know about it. It's called Birthright Israel. Absolutely. I spent with a gentleman on a Zoom for me to learn, nothing for him to gain, 70 minutes with a gentleman from New York. I wrote him an email and he replied and he gave me 70 minutes. I actually had to like end it because I felt bad for him because this was all for me. And I was just obsessed with how do you go about doing this? And they have done tremendous things. They've sent uh, over 750,000 young uh, people, 18 to 26, to Israel from all over the world. They send 50,000 a year. They're incredible. And I'm, I'm ashamed for us, upset for us, because the leaders of us don't even care about this. And it, it bothers, if you know me better, it bothers the living crap out of me. Like this really bothers me because it bothers me too. It is so apparent what we can do, and we piss away. I'm going to use that word: piss away time and effort and energy, talking and doing nothing and accomplishing nothing. And you can quote me on that because when it comes to this stuff, I will stand toe to toe with any of them. No, luckily, my mother decided that we needed to go to Sicily and meet her cousins. And she gave my sister, me, and my brother um, money to be able to do it. And so when my boys were, were 15 and 17, we spent three weeks in, uh, we spent 10 days with the family and the other part of the vacation touring Italy and, and Sicily. And we, I would, we were, God bless my mother for that gift to my boys. But, uh, and then where did my son go on his honeymoon? Italy. Of course, of course. No, it's, it's uh, you know, would it affect every single uh, young person? No, of course not. But it probably does. Birthright Israel doesn't affect every single one. But the percentages of, of uh, affecting them in the rest of their lives is astronomical. It's astronomical. And us, this is what we, when I say we, Italian America, needs to do because we're going down the tubes. Ethnically speaking, we are we are on our way down for many reasons that would take an entire other podcast to talk about. Um, but that is reality. That is facts. OK. And this is something that could have a really good opportunity to turn it around. And yet, I don't know. They we just- need somebody like uh, he's not with us anymore, like an Iacocca. We need some big people like of that stature who would in, invest in this, be invested in the idea. That's what we need. Unfortunately, yeah. those type of people are uh, unfortunately long gone. And uh, what's left is um, doesn't cut it uh, to those type of people. 
no, with Italy, you've got the art, you've got the culture, you've got the food, you've got, uh, you've got mountains, sea. I mean, it's, it's an just, easy sell. You just have to, oh, yeah. you, when I say you, I mean, we as a, as a ethnic group have to organize this, get these younger people there. And believe me, I think the rest, everything would change. You know, the, the common thing amongst people talking, I'm on a lot of Zooms throughout the country and, um, you can't get younger people interested in all these clubs and organizations anymore. Right. Every right. Club those are going to fade away. Yes. Every club has the same problem. Well, this would ultimately solve those problems because then you'd be creating better, more knowledgeable and more enthusiastic young Italian-Americans. But that's just me. I just was, I know. No, it's, it's me too. I've had this discussion with others before. I'm 100% with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Karen, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you for the interview. Thank you for writing about Italian-American subjects and people and, and, and tragedies and, and just stories, just keeping these stories alive because there's too few of you all to do that. We have so many stories. So I thank you as an Italian-American. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a fabulous talk with you. Uh, I love your energy and um, look forward to, to other conversations, uh, not even, not on podcasts, but separately. Appreciate I would love it. to. I would love to. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. Hope to see you when I come to uh, Definitely. Come May come to, to our Italian American Literati event in Chicago, Casitalia. It would be, be great to see you. Thank you okay. so much. Thank See you. you then. Ciao.